0: Hey, this episode was brought to you by the iBioMed program at McMaster University. Follow Mac iBioMed or stick around for more info.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Welcome to the iBioMed Brainwaves podcast. I'm here with uh, my my name is John Milkovich, and I'm here with my co-host and good friend, uh, Abby, and we will be getting um, our podcast with a special guest. And so, Abby, if you can take it away and uh, introduce uh, Dr. McDonald.
2: Yeah. So today on our podcast, we are joined by the illustrious Dr. Colin McDonald, the associate director of the iBioMed program, who has also been teaching 1P10, which is the first year, one of the first year courses in iBio since the very beginning. So since year one. So everyone who is in iBio right now has had Dr. McDonald at some point, which is very exciting. For us to be able to talk to him today. He has a lot of great stories and we are very excited to hear some of them.
3: Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for that introduction, illustrious. Wow, that that means <laughs> a lot. Thank you. Uh it's great to be here.
2: How are you doing today, Dr. McDonald?
3: So I'm doing well. Uh it's it's nice to actually look out and see the sun. The past couple of days has been nothing but rain, so the term is moving nicely, it's it's very busy, but this at this time of year, the, around like the mid-October, the busyness doesn't stop, but things kind of settle in, you kind of get used to it a little bit, so things are going quite well.
2: How is this year looking compared to last year? I know this year is a bit more in-person than last year.
3: Yes, it's very different. Um, it's been, I mean, on the one hand, it has been invigorating to be back on campus. I was not on campus at all last year. Everything was at home, so it's that part of it has been invigorating. It's been it's been wonderful to to walk through campus, to walk across campus, to walk into buildings and see people, uh, even if it's just from above the nose, uh, the brim of the nose. Um, it's been challenging for sure. Uh, with one v ten, especially, we actually we've really put a lot of effort in to have as many in-person experiences as possible. So we're we're doing in-person lectures, uh, we're doing in-person labs, we're doing in-person design studio, but we recognize it's still a pandemic and so we know that there are some students who are virtual and that we still wanna make sure that the in-person environment is is safe. And so students are actually alternate between in-person and virtual activities. And so the logistics behind the scenes is a lot. And so it's been yeah. very busy. Uh, but honestly, it's totally worth it. Um, just to be able to, to interact with the students face to face, to be able to, to read those cues that you can't really get when you're just looking at somebody's initials on Microsoft Teams. And and it's I think it's been a double, a double bonus this year because. Not only do we get do I get to see my students almost every single day, is that it's so wonderful to be meeting former students from last year that that I didn't get a chance to meet, right? Not not face to face. And so walking across campus and having some of my students from last year come up and say hi has been awesome. And that's been that's been absolutely fantastic. So so yeah, I would say invigorating, challenging, but absolutely worth it.
2: Yeah, I know a lot of my friends and those who started first year online are so excited to meet you Dr. McDonald. Uh, when we uh were meeting at the beginning of the year, be like, "Oh, have you met Dr. McDonald yet? Have you seen Dr. McDonald yet? Have you talked to Dr. McDonald yet?" Is, I
3: bet uh, they all they're all wondering how tall I am, right? Yeah. That's the question. <laughs> how tall is Dr. McDonald? And it's funny because that's the one thing that you don't gauge from virtual meetings, yeah. you have no idea how tall somebody is, and yeah. there are those certain. You know, I think there's. It's funny because the the you know the societal expectations on on what's appropriate and yeah. what's not. If somebody's tall, then you you say it right off. Whoa, you're really tall. Yeah, <laughs> but if somebody's short, you know, I'm not going to name names like myself. Um, <laughs> nobody will <laughs> say it to their face. Right. Wow, you're a lot shorter than I thought you were. It's okay. I know I'm short, <laughs> so it's it's been wild. Yeah,
1: I, I we can I can totally agree with you on the the invigorating uh, aspect and the the excitement of being back online. Um, I guess as as, a, as a, from a student's perspective, it is pretty tough um, in terms of managing time and. I mean, just living alone. I mean, for for a lot of these stu- for for a lot of these students who have been sort of like, you know, cooped up in their homes, uh, you know, not really interacting. It, it is like a little bit easier to just sort of have everything sort of, I guess, streamlined on on the computer. But when you actually have to like take into account walking on campus and like, you know, what am I going to eat tonight? Oh, it's frozen. I guess we're eating frozen food again. You know what I mean? It's there's definitely some hiccups along the way for I think a lot of students. And I think that's just sort of an additional factor transition. Yeah, John,
3: I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it's it's actually even more so because we are still in the middle, right? And I think if it was, um, I think if everything flipped back to normal, where it was, you know, you have, and, and we knew long time ago that it was going to flip back to normal. So that if you're in first year, you're in residence, and you have your lectures in person and you have everything in person and if you're in second year third year you find your place close to campus and again everything is on campus all the time but i think when when we're still in this in the middle road where some stuff is in person and some stuff is virtual yes it can get very disorienting right because cuz mm-hmm. you don't when you have a classroom in a building you know to go to that building that's locked in but if now it is on Zoom or on Microsoft Teams, uh, and then the, the place you went last time was too busy or was dirty or whatever, then you need to find somewhere new. And that's really hard. Uh, and I, I say that as somebody who has had many, many, many meetings, not in my office because I'm just running around. So I understand. I understand what that's like. It's tough. And, and, and so... Obviously, it's great to be back, but the working out those challenges, those challenges along the way is tricky.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, on the note of of transitioning back into person, um, I mean, there are sort of the, the successes of it, but then there's also the failures. And that's sort of going to be our topic today. We want to sort of talk about the notion of, of failing forward. We want to sort of have an open and honest conversation of what failure truly is like because at times it's something that we have think we've all sort of experienced at one point or another and it's a really difficult thing to talk about but also I think a really important thing to talk about and so we sort of want to open up with uh with you know Dr. McDonald if you don't mind sharing what is a uh an example uh, maybe on the lighter side that you've sort of experienced as the iBioMed um, director and sort of like, you know, professor of the 1v10 course.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think I've seen a lot for sure. And it's funny because there is a perception of failures when you think of failure as failing a test or an assignment, right? Um, but failure also means exploring, trying something out and it just doesn't work um and honestly those are the kind of failures that we see in 1p10 or in and in, in any of these in any of these project courses and of course the challenge here is that it's really hard because the you the student needs to and and, and me the instructor needs to actually wade into those uncomfortable waters where failure might happen um and so i've seen i've seen a lot of it and it, it, you know, I, I've seen the good side. I've seen the bad side. There was uh, there was a project. It's actually I have two two stories from from one project that we did uh, in the first year of the program on the stu- on the student side and then on the instructor side. So on the student side, uh, I, I, I I very vividly recall being in design studio uh, as as students were were testing and refining one of their design projects. Now, this design project involved designing and fabricating a little gearing mechanism. And so, the purpose of the gearing mechanism was that it was meant to control uh, a finger and thumb, to make that finger and thumb open and close, to simulate a prosthetic. And so, we had walked through a number of activities with the students, where they, they learned about gearing mechanisms, they went through sample calculations, and then ultimately they needed to 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 build and, and assemble a functional prototype. And when I say functional prototype, they needed to rotate this little gear on the one end of the prosthetic hand, and then the the finger and thumb would open and close. And of course when I say close I mean the fingertips would touch each other. And so I'm in the design studio and I'm walking around and I'm and I sit down at a table as to see how these students are doing. And right off the bat, before they've even tested it, because they haven't tested it yet, they were just, they were busy putting all the gears together. And I would I was just, I was examining their gear train and I was, I, I, I just very quickly wondered, I think their gear train is wrong. And I don't know if they have the right number of gears that they should. And so I asked them, have you tested it yet? And they're like, No, we probably should do that. Well, I th- yeah, probably a good idea. And so the one student rotates the first that op- that first gear, and what happens? Well, sure enough, both the finger and the thumb rotate in the same direction, <laughs> so they never actually close. And the the result is like there is this uncomfortable laughter, which is actually masking. Tears that are that are, <laughs> oh, that are welling no. up in the eyes, right? And, and because it's it's an absolute panic, and and so like okay, well, hang on, hang on a second, what happened? Like and and so I was at, I made a conscious point not to fix it for them, but just to be like okay, what happened? Let's walk through uh, where the mistake was, and you know I let them collect themselves because they needed a moment to collect. Um, and I circled back to a, to a few tables and I mean, it was, it, things get very busy. So I kind of got distracted. I come back about 30 minutes later and they had already figured out what it was. Uh, they figured out what the issue was, but of course they still had, they still had the prototype that didn't work. Um, and so, I mean, they, they had to, they had to rebuild it. Right. And then all of a sudden there's this panic, like we're out of time. It, you know, the, the the assignment is going to be due very soon. And I'm like, well, hang on a second though. You've already made it once. Right. And so think about how, how many trips along the way you went through when you made it that one time. Mm, Yeah. And now what you're going to be doing is you're just going back to fix that little error. Right. So yes, you are going to need to repeat yourself, uh, repeat some steps, but you're going to find that a lot of those steps you've already kind of covered. Um, and the next, I mean, the next day I'm in the design studio and they literally, they, they, they the second they saw me, they called me over um, and they were so excited to, to show me the prototype and it worked and it was fantastic. And it was, um, I mean, part of it was the, just that um, the, the recognizing, oh no we just made a huge mistake. Yeah. But then taking the time to collect themselves, to steady themselves and and just to figure out okay, how do we fix it? And and I I think that group especially d- really developed and applied a lot of resiliency. Right? Because yeah, they could have just they could have just bailed. They could have just said, "Screw it. We're going to get we're going to lose marks, but they didn't, they, they, they kept at it and, and they ended up having a successful outcome. So that was, that was, that was, that was pretty cool to see. The funny thing about that project is that on the instructor side, that project was a colossal failure (coughs) Uh, (laughs) developing that project. And the reason I say it was a colossal failure is calibrating the, the project expectations and and how how certain things can be communicated with students, and lining it up with what we can expect them to learn and apply throughout the project, and I can say, uh, you know, everyone in that from that fr- first cohort would agree, because I think it did lead to a little bit of a little bit of post traumatic stress disorder sure. temporary. <laughs> temporary. Um, is the the way that the project was set up? It was really hard. For the students to to test, to test out their designs and to verify that it was correct. And because it was really hard for them to verify that it was correct, there was there was a lot of traps that they would run into. So for students who are writing a computer program, they would run it run into issues where they would have rounding errors. Um, because the, the the math, we did not spend enough time on the back end. Setting up the math so that students can be like, "That's the output. Yes, my answer's right. I can move on. the The numbers that we were using were a little bit, they were for lack of a better word, they were a little bit squirrely. Shoot. So it, it just it really created uh, a stressful environment that bordered on unproductive. Right. Stress is a good thing stress is actually a good thing. It's, it's important to, uh, to be able to manage stress, but at the same time, I think as, as, as the instructor, we have the responsibility to have the thumb on the pulse. And so that we can understand where, where the stressors are and, and recognize that, no, that's okay. You know, you got to get through it. We're here to support you. and then sometimes to recognize and be like, you know what, we need to, we need to use this project somewhere else because at this, at this point in time, it's just not appropriate. And we do. We actually use that project in the course in a different way, mm-hmm. in a way where the students are able to kind of go through it step by step and in a way where the students are can use it as a learning tool rather than applying what they've already learned, but using it as a learning tool where they can more easily test uh, their outcomes. And I, I think it's been better as a result. But boy, it was, a, it was a stressful time to get there.
2: Yeah, that, it must be so hard, Like even from the instructor's perspective, of having to come up with all this course content and ways to evaluate students' knowledge and then to make that fair and achievable for the students, but also challenging.
3: It is, and I've, I've had a lot of experience with, with courses that are assignment and exam-based, and then I've had a lot of experience with project courses, which are which are hard to evaluate. They're really yeah. hard to evaluate. They're so much more fun. Yeah. Uh, the outcomes are better, right? In terms of what students take away from them, it's better. But you, but Abby, it's challenging for sure. It's challenging to, 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 to find that one task, that one challenge to give them, that's going to be hard enough um but to 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 be to have the thumb on the pulse so to speak so that you know they can ride it out and you know that they can get to for the most part the most of them can 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 get to a successful outcome
1: and and just to sort of i guess elaborate on one of the points as stress being a good thing i think this is sort of a really interesting uh take and i and i agree with this as well with stress being sort of this 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 motivator in a way the thing that keeps you in line but and I always tell people you know the best students are the ones that thrive are the ones that can manage their stress properly and and so I want to ask you in times of these failure right when when the sort of students realize that the fingers were moving in the same direction and and they were almost sort of I guess you know laughing off what you know is really masking those tears how How do students and how do professors, how does anyone at that moment, you know, overcome that overwhelming stress that, you know, can really almost seem like that situation is the end of the world. The sky is falling. You know, how do, how do students build that resiliency?
3: So that's a great question. And I, 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 think everybody approaches it differently. I think one thing that has to happen is that the you need to let it hit you, and you need to let that feeling sink in. It's almost like the the waves crashing over you uh, when you step out into the ocean, right? You need to let it hit you, and and ultimately, when it passes by, you're still standing. And when I encounter them, when I so going back to this example. When I encounter them, one of the one of the strategies that I that I help students appreciate is the context of it all, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because it is true, it feels like a lot, and so whether it's a project, whether it's an assignment, whether it's a test, it feels like a lot of the time. Um, but one of the things that I that I have had a lot of conversations with students about. Is looking at it from thirty-five thousand feet, right? So let's let's zoom out and let's look at it big picture. And what does it mean? All of these little all of these little tests and whatnot uh, in in our university experiences, it doesn't mean very much. And and that's not to minimize it. it, it I mean, it, it shouldn't be minimized because it sucks. Whatever kind of failure you you go through, I think failures on exams uh, and tests. Is is a lot harder in some ways because there isn't that opportunity to try again. There isn't that opportunity to write that test again. You got that mark, and that that mark is what it is. But the the reality is is that um, as as a university student, your future is not determined by what happens there, and the. You know, in the moment, one of the things that I that I just walked through the student with the student is, well, what is the exam worth? What is the test worth? What is the assignment worth? Um, right. And, and and look at it on the big picture in terms of how you did. Um, the reality is, um, is these these type of, of failures in isolation don't define where you're going to go. There's lots of pathways for a very bright future some of us have a very winding road some of us it's a very straight path but there's lots of different pathways and 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 a bump on the road along the way is not going to prevent you from getting where you need to go
2: yeah i think that's really good advice i remember in my first year the first test i ever failed in university it was a math test and i guess i like to go big or go home because instead of failing with a 40, failing with a a 50, I got a 27 on the math test, (laughs) a 27%. (laughs) And it was worth—it's math, so it was worth a decent chunk of the grade. And I remember feeling like a complete failure because math was my best subject in high school. You know, it was the one thing I could count on to always be good at. And I just remember thinking, am I meant to be in this program? You know, uh, I'd had so much worth and I put my value in you know my performance, especially at math. And so to have that kind of result, it really shook the foundation of who I saw myself as. And it took a while to realize that my performance on a test does not define who I am and it doesn't define uh, my worth or my value. And that type of calculus is not my strength and that's okay. I have other strengths and recognizing that not being good at one thing does not mean that I'm not good at anything. And I think that was a huge turning point for me in university. And now I can uh, actually look at, okay, why did I fail this? How can I fix this for the future? What did I learn from this? And how can I grow from this instead of uh, the failure being the stopping point?
3: We share like minds because calculus Calculus was also not my friend in first year either, <laughs> um, and so I can understand that. I remember, so this is before failure came into the equation. It came, but before it came into the equation, there was the for me there was that first day of class, and I sat down in a big lecture hall, and the professor just started going a mile a minute. Yep, and all of these students are raising their hand and they're asking questions, they're answering questions. And I had no idea what was going on, and immediately that imposter syndrome set in. You know, do I belong here? Now the problem with that is that it's it it started to feel like it was validating itself after the first two tests. Um, the second of which, I think I got a fifty, but that was after a significant bump. Something on the order of 15 to 20%. And so I failed that second test miserably. And that hurt. That hurt a lot because I had done quite well in high school. And I started to wonder, you know, am I, am I meant, is this something that, I, that, I, that I'm able to do? Now, the answer was absolutely yes. Not with that calculus course. Um, When I got to the final exam, I specifically remember there was a part A and a part B. Part B was all calculator-based. We had to use a special graphing calculator. Uh, I think I got a zero. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure for that entire section, I got a zero. Um, I passed the course. And the, the funny thing is, is when I got to that test, because of all of the bumps that I had been through along the way, by the time I got to that final exam, is I was able to, to go through the exam and to realize this is not going to go well. Okay, am I gonna pass? And I did the cal- and I, we've all done it. And if we have it, we're going to. I, I did those calculations. You know, I, I I literally I think I literally wrote it on the de- on the desk um, to see what what kind of mark do I need to pass. Thankfully, it was a pretty low bench to get to to get to and I did it and then the the panic that I had from the previous test just wasn't there and I think that is attributed to that to resiliency and that is really what failure is about Uh, it's it's really about developing that kind of resiliency.
1: Yeah, and one of the reasons we we wanted you as a as a guest on this podcast is because you've you've sort of been the the person I guess I biomed students go to after they've sort of dealt with the first phase of failure, and that's sort of I guess like the panic. And I'm speaking from personal experience. I actually a- approached you after my my three MT presentation for the the Osmi project. Um, And and during the presentation, I mean, actually, sorry, I'll start like prior to the presentation. I was feeling, I was feeling good. I mean, like I was approaching ETB, you know, I had my headphones in, I was jamming out to pumped up kicks. I was like, you know, we're going to like kill this presentation. This is going to be, this is going to be solid. And it's the first time, you know, I stood up in front of the class and I started speaking. And I remember my mind just completely blanked and... Those are really, you know, because, you know, everyone felt constrained by the three minutes. However, this was a time where I was like, wow, I have never lived a longer three minutes. I could hear my pulse. I can feel my breathing. I could feel sort of the eyes just narrowing down on my, you know, my stuttering. And it was just, you know, I couldn't get the ball rolling. And I remember walking out of that presentation feeling completely flustered and overwhelmed. And one of the first things I did, and I think one of the first things a lot of iBioMed students doing and and university students is they get together and they discuss, they say, how'd the test go? How'd the presentation go? And I think those can be very sort of dangerous situations because not only, now you're not comparing yourself to yourself and your own personal journey and progress, but you're comparing people's and specifically, your own weaknesses to people's strengths. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, you were very helpful. I mean, you sort of really gave me that newfound sort of perspective that I needed and what to sort of do better. And, and actually, whenever sort of I, I face, you know, failure now, I think back to our conversations and sort of some of the lessons that you you, you taught me in sort of like overcoming that failure and being proactive so that, you know, it doesn't necessarily... Pan out the same way that it did before.
3: Yeah, uh, I do remember. I do actually remember that conversation. And I mean, I mean, John, you're right. It's interesting you say the point about the the communal after the exam or the presentation where, where people gather. And as a university student, I never did that. Whether I, whether I felt good or not good about a test, that just wasn't something that that I did. But I I do think it is dangerous. I th- I think it's okay if 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 somebody openly wants to, to chat with somebody who also openly wants to chat and, and to just kind of feel a little bit better about about questions. But I think sometimes what inevitably happens is you hear about how others did when you didn't really, maybe you didn't do too well and you didn't want to hear how others did, right? And so I think... Those things, they can be helpful, but I do think that they can be a lot more dangerous. And I think that, I think if you want to talk to others, you know, talk to others one-on-one, don't talk to others in big groups where others can see and then, and then feel worse about how they did. Cause you know, that, that part isn't helpful, right? Because that's that internalizing that we all need to work at getting it out of us on our own, but you know, not hearing how others are doing can, that can certainly negatively impact you.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, I guess this is our our time to wrap up our podcast. We, we, first of all, just want to thank you for, for your time and, and, you know, your, your insights to how sort of people can move forward and not let failure act as sort of this, this paralyzing agent, but rather this, this, you know, use stress as a motivator to realize, yeah, if I'm feeling stressed out about something, it's probably something uh, worthwhile that I'm doing. So, thank you for for your insights, and uh, we, we really enjoyed having our conversation with you.
3: Well, it was a it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be here. I think that hopefully, hopefully everyone can kind of take a few uh, a few things from this. Hopefully, um, I, I mean that there's there's more challenges along the way. Um, Abby, John, have either of you ever done track in high school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We all did it. I was terrible at it. Did (laughs) you ever do high jump? (laughs) Yes. Yes, right? I did too. Somebody who is not terribly tall, not a good thing. (laughs) Um, I liken that to developing resiliency, right? That's combating failure. You want to get to that higher bar, you got to try it. Yeah. Uh, And you're going to hit the bar. You're going to do it again and again and again. And then you're going to do it and then you're going to do it and then you're going to get then you can work on the next bar and that's because that's life and so uh i think for us for all of us whether you're in first year second year fifth year whether you're somewhat older middle life and, and and working at a university there's still more of those failures along the way so thanks so much for having me it was uh it was fantastic to catch up and i and i and i look forward to to seeing both of you on campus, because it's, it's awesome to be here.
2: Thank you so much for joining us uh, and for sharing all of your insight with us. I definitely got a lot out of it, especially that it's not whether or not you fail, it's how you fail and what you do with that failure. So thank you for uh,
3: sharing your stories. All right. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, John. You two have a great day.
0: You as well. Thank you. But wait, the episode's not over. Let's see what we've got in store for this episode's iBioBits.
4: Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Sarah. And
0: I'm Manveer,
4: And we are your biomedical news reporters.
5: We're here to prescribe you your daily dose of biomedical news.
6: This is Biomed in 5. In this segment,
4: we'll be sharing exciting news from the world of biomedical engineering and provide ideas for your future with an iBio degree. Let's take it to Sarah C. for our first story of the day.
6: We've all seen them. Some of us may love them. Some of us may hate them. But we can all agree that Raspberry Pis are a fascinating piece of technology. Literally a mini, portable, affordable computer. Now, two researchers in India created a device using a Raspberry Pi to analyze blood samples.
4: Oh wow, a Raspberry Pi takes me back to my first year days of 1P10.
6: Exactly. So in my first year, we used these Raspberry Pis in 1P10 to access cool software like Quanzar Labs and to run simulations. But they can be used for so much more, like these blood samples. How does it work? So in a laboratory setting, then you analyze blood samples using light. So you pass light through the sample and then the intensity of light will change while it goes through the sample depending on the substances that it passes through. In this device, then they have an automated fluid dispenser, and this adds a specific amount of reagent into the blood sample. From there, light passes through and then that's all that data is then collected and analyzed in the Raspberry Pi. Then, they can actually alter this test depending on the type of reagent used, and the wavelength of light used, to test for all sorts of different diseases. Oh, who does that help? So, blood tests, as we may or may not be familiar with, are super important for monitoring all sorts of diseases, but they require laboratories to analyze them. This makes them really inaccessible for rural communities. Using those Raspberry Pi, which, as I mentioned, is super portable and super affordable, they can analyze the results and get accurate results produced in 30 seconds. This is truly life-changing for some people. And if they can do this, what can you do with the Raspberry Pi? That's amazing, Sarah. Thank you so much.
4: All right, now let's take it to Manvir for the next story of the day.
6: Uh,
5: Sarah, it's actually Buckwheat Bob checking in for you today. Manvir ain't here right now because he burnt the top of his mouth from a hot bagel. It looks like to me he's reporting on this new biosymbiotic wearable device that measures a whole lot of health metrics and doesn't need no charging.
4: Oh, uh, sorry about that, Buckwheat Bob. What's so different about this device from other wearable devices?
5: It's all in the headline, Sarah. Ain't nobody ever come up with the idea of a health wearable that measures medical factors while not needing a charging. I mean, this thing can measure anything from frailty in older adults. It can diagnose diseases, administer drugs. Shoo, if you place her on my tree trunk, hammies, you can see how my leg muscles deform With each step, I lug Betsy up the hill. Oh, wow. How does that work? Oh, well, Betsy has cowpox, so she's been lighter these days, and it ain't hard to get her going. No, no, no,
4: wait, Buckwheat, wait, can I call you Buckwheat?
5: Uh, ma'am, it's Buckwheat Bob to you. Uh,
4: well then, as I was saying, Buckwheat Bob, how can such a device track so many metrics with not needing a charge?
5: Well, you see, Sarah, this wearable is based on MRI and CAT scans the doctors take of the user. Based on these scans, the engineers design the wearable according to each patient's physiological profile. This way, they're able to extract all the data they need. This device also uses wireless power transfer and compact energy storage to run 24 7.
4: What does this mean for the wearable device industry? Where do you think we can expect the future of this device to be?
5: Well, right now, these researchers need to find a way to mass produce this device. Not everybody wants to go get their body scanned, and doctors ain't got the time for that. A uniform device that maintains its function while helping all sorts of people is what is needed to see this in the marketplace sometime soon. I encourage you, all of you fellow at Biomatters to go check out the University of Arizona's research and see their development on this biosymbiotic device.
4: Wow, Buckwheat Bob, that was amazing. Thank you so much.
5: No problem, Sarah. Buckwheat out.
4: All right, guys, thanks so much. And that's all for today. Stay tuned for the next Biomed in 5.
0: Hey, you've reached the end of this episode. Well, there's actually a bit more. Thanks for donating your brainwaves to us for this short amount of time. To keep up with what's on our minds, make sure to like and follow the podcast. We'll be releasing new episodes on the first Thursday of each month with a different set of hosts. Got a question, comment, or suggestion on your minds? You can send a voice message at anchor.fm slash mcmaster iBioMed or fill out our online form at bit.ly slash brainwaves questions. Want to keep up with all things iBioMed? Follow our Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channels at iBiomed. And thanks to Lope Music Production for our background music. Until next time.